1: You can have the most beautiful racetrack in the world, the greatest race drivers turning the fastest speeds and racing inches apart, with a fairy tale ending set to unfold that would make Hollywood movie producers proud. But if there's no one sitting in the stands to see it, it really doesn't matter all that much, does it? That's where the racetrack promoter comes in, the guy that has the job of getting people in the seats to see all the action to make them say, I was there. And maybe they'll still be talking about it four decades later. Such as the 1979 Daytona 500 when Donnie Allison and Gail Yarborough crashed on the last lap while racing for the win. They exited their cars at the bottom of turn three, got into a fight. And Bobby Allison, Donnie's older brother and three time Daytona 500 winner, also got in that same fight. And it was on live TV, and millions of fans were watching. Richard Petty went on to victory lane and enjoyed his sixth of seven career daytona 500 victories and someone somewhere said to all those race fans in attendance that day buy a ticket come to see what nascar is all about well let's go way way back for a moment to june 19th 1949 in charlotte that meant a lot of people heard about nascar on radio spots printed cardboard placards stapled to telephone poles and word of mouth conversations and in the case of the Charlotte race, there was a guy named Jack Mosley that had an action figure comic strip named The Adventures of Smiling Jack. To put it in perspective, Mosley's comic strip was huge, sort of like the exposure of what Facebook is today. Honestly, it, it was in hundreds of newspapers across the country. Mosley mentioned there would be a NASCAR race in Charlotte in his syndicated newspaper information comic strip. It was an aviation-style strip, not really comic, if you will. Let's call it superhero for the young boys of that time looking for adventure, boarding on Buck Rogers and airplane racing, that kind of thing. Race winner Jim Roper saw the strip and drove from Kansas to North Carolina to be in the race. As they say, the rest is history. Oh, and then Roper drove his Lincoln back to Kansas with two grand in his pocket, smiling like Jack all the way home. And in the early days, most races were held at county fairs. So you went there for rides and cotton candy and the races were in the corner as a sideshow, not the other way around. And as time went on, preliminary events such as local concerts and juggling acts were performed before races to get fans to come. And that was the birth of pre-race activities. The king of pre-race entertainment was, and always will be, H. A. Humpy Wheeler, the longtime president of Charlotte Motor Speedway. Whether it was boxing matches, lion taming, cars jumping buses, or for that matter, buses jumping cars, daredevils being shot at a cannons you name it, it was done. Nothing, and I mean nothing, was a crazy idea as long as somebody didn't get hurt or killed in the process. Fun was the name of the game. Oh, and all of that was before the Cup Series races even began at CMS. Promoting races was and still is an art form, maybe a lost art form in this day and time. No one did it better than Humpy. He was truly the very best track promoter in NASCAR history. For the event promoter, getting fans to come to the racetrack meant everything in the early days. And it still holds true today.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a lifetime in motorsports, otherwise known as a lifetime in NASCAR or previously known as a lifetime in NASCAR. Yes, we have changed the name of it. It is no longer a lifetime in NASCAR. We're deciding to, we decided to expand the the breadth and the scope of the podcast. So this is a lifetime in motorsports, and we're at episode number 77. That's right, 77. Seven. And I can't tell you how excited I am, uh, along with my good buddy Ben White, to have a very, very, very special guest. And, I mean, this is going to be one heck of a podcast. Trust me, folks. We are bringing in the man, the legend, Probably the greatest promoter in NASCAR has ever seen, Humpy Wheeler. Humpy, can't thank you enough for taking the time and joining us today. And we're going to have a lot of fun talking about, you know, promotions uh, back in the back in the day, the '50s, '60s, '70s, '80s. You were right there in the middle of all that. Uh, but first of all, thank you ever so much for taking the time and joining us today. I really appreciate it. Glad to be on, Jerry, and thanks for asking. All right. Well, let's let's get started. I mean. First of all, you know, uh, you're kind of in, in semi-retirement, but I know you're still busier than you've ever been. And tell us what you're doing these days. Uh, I know you you have an affiliation. I believe you're still affiliated with uh, Belmont Abbey College and their uh, motorsports uh, administration program there. I know, I, I know you've got a lot of thing, other things going on. What, what, what's keeping you busy these days? Well, a lot of things. I'm uh, working on a movie. Really?
3: With, uh, yeah, with the guys that, that, that did Yellowstone. It's going to be a racing movie called Maximum Speed, uh, so that's one thing. I'm, I'm, I'm staying close to my dear wife, Pat, who in my 60 years of marriage, most of it in the, the part that was in racing, we didn't get to spend a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, we are now, but I got a lot of things going. So at the same time, I'm also enjoying my old age and relaxing.
2: Well, I, I've got to ask you, tell us more about Maximum Speed. This is the first I'm hearing about this. this obviously, I, the listeners are going to be very intrigued by this. Tell us what the movie's about.
3: Well, it, it's a rough parody on the Petty family. Uh, it, it involves a, uh, uh, an older driver who would be like Lee Petty was back mm-hmm. in the day, mm-hmm. and uh, his two young sons who don't like each other and the father is still racing gets involved in a bad wreck and the two sons come along and uh, one of them is quit racing and gone to rodeo
2: mm-hmm. and
3: mm. became a world champion uh they want him back in racing so the two brothers clash and bash and do things that you do have to do in movies to get people interested
2: mm-hmm. and so
3: that's about that's that's about it
2: when when well, do you expect the, the movie to, to uh, come out? I mean, is it going to be uh, on, at the theaters? Is it going to be on TV? Where, where are we going to see it and when? Where, where well, we
3: you it? know, with a movie today, you don't know what to do because uh, uh, you have to make a decision. You're going to go with Netflix, Prime Video. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, what are you going to do? We got hooked up with the Yellowstone people. Oh,
2: okay. And,
3: and uh, so they've... Uh, lent us a lot of uh, help and also uh we're going to get some casting out of the the uh the yellowstone uh talent mm-hmm. and i think that'll help the problem is nobody's really made a movie in the last 18 to 24 months and everybody's scurrying for talent and uh, uh everything else right now so uh, that's put us a little behind we should have come out with this movie last august but covid <laughs> uh interrupted a lot of people's plans mm-hmm. so i've been in you know involved in motion pictures and, and for, for for a long time in and out no no big deals but i've also always been fascinated by it so it's going to be interesting and uh hopefully we'll be able to start shooting uh, uh next spring and mm-hmm. uh uh go from there.
1: Okay. Well, the good news about this humpy is that people in Hollywood for whatever reason can't seem to get a stock car racing movie accurate knowing that you're involved. Hopefully they will uh they will they will get it uh, accurate because you are involved and that's that's the exciting part about it and uh so congratulations on that. I hope, I wish you the very best with it. And we do.
3: Well, thank you, and and I'm gonna to try to make it as realistic as possible. But when you deal with Hollywood, realism and truth uh, sometimes go fleeting away.
1: Yes, sir. I understand. I know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, you know, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today, and and you know, we you are the absolute I would say Richard Petty of promoters, and I mean that with all compliments, and. You know the fun part about talking about today's show is, you know, the the basic number one question is, and you're you have all the answers to this, and I know you've uh, you've studied this particular question for decades and decades. It's basically how do you get people to come to racetracks? And you know, back in the very early days of NASCAR, even before NASCAR was formed, it was you have to have a hook, right? And so, as you know, you a lot of in the very early days of it. Uh, promoters would say, "Gosh, how do we get people to come?" and and I know, at talking to some other historians, they would say, "Well, gosh, you know, we got some guys out there that love to run moonshine in the mountains, so let's let them run moonshines during the week, and let's put them on a racetrack in the weekends." And you know, I remember guys that maybe some of these guys didn't run NASCAR, such as guys like uh, Lloyd C. and Roy Hall and. And those guys that drove for Raymond parks, but you can kind of fill us in. I mean, that was sort of the way that it was in the early days. You'd have fairgrounds and in the corner would be the guys, uh, who would run a race track. Yeah. Basically what you do is you go to the fair and in and, and, and the corner would be the racers. Is that correct?
3: That's it. Well, back in those days, uh, we didn't have the media, obviously that we have now, we had the media, but they didn't pay any attention to racing. Matter of fact, some newspapers uh, would not print a word about racing. Mm-hmm. So we had to get real innovative to get publicity. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was uh, uh, sitting around between jobs at one time, like all of us do. And uh, I got a call from Mr. Harold Payton, who is, had built uh, Augusta Raceway. Uh, down in Augusta, Georgia, uh, which was a two-mile road course. Never built a road course in those days for (laughs) NASCAR, Mm -hmm. but he did anyway. He wasn't selling any tickets. He had to race in November. He said, can you come down and help us out? We can't get any publicity. So I went down there, and uh, I looked at the place, and I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be tough way out in the country. And uh, so – my buddy Joe Weatherly was uh, coming in for a tire test. So I went over and started talking to him. I said, Joe, we got to get some publicity here because this place is going to die if we don't. And he said, well, I'll think about it and so forth. So anyway, he's running around the track, and, and the track starts off the, kind of the front stretch, if you want to call it that way. It was up on top of the hill. And then you went down the track to the bottom and then you came back up. Well, down at the bottom was a marshy place and, uh, you know, you're in Georgia and all that kind of stuff. So Joe goes down there and loses a car and, uh, ends up in the swamp. (laughs) 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 So I went down there, you know, and, and, uh, taking pictures and all that kind of stuff. And I said, Joe, how did you get in here? He said, well, I don't know how I got in here, but I'm sure getting out fast. <laughs> Look at Look over there. And there was a dog on alligator. Oh, oh, wow.
2: Wow. Oh, that's
3: all. That's all we needed. <laughs> <laughs> and we renamed that corner alligator alley. And we talked about how Joe escaped death. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. By not only getting out of the car and not drowning, but also escaping from this 14-foot alligator.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, you know, having the yeah. alligator in the water is a good way to not, you know, take on water in your lungs. <laughs> you well walking on water by the time you yeah. get out of the race car is like, uh, you know, there's no time to breathe in water if you see an alligator, that's for sure.
3: So we, we finally started selling some tickets because uh, we got some publicity off that. But you had to come up with stuff that really um, uh, would force the media to cover it. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about alligators and Joe Weatherly, you're going to say something. Um, then if you had a, a, a race, what you'd run into is a stall, ticket stall. You just stopped selling tickets for some reason. And uh, that's when you had to get the dynamite out and uh, come up with something that would uh, uh, create a fur among the fans so they'd buy some tickets. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used to run into those stalls all the time, and that's where the promoter came out because you couldn't just sit around there and wait for the race to happen because it would happen, but you wouldn't have many people in the grandstand. Yeah. So we'd yeah. come up with any kind of angle we could, to, to get the to publicity. I remember we got Darlington coming up, but uh, I'm down at Darlington and uh, I'm, uh, I'm getting ready for football practice, University of South Carolina, but I'm working to the great publicist, Russ Catlin, who oh, yeah. was probably the best publicist we've ever had in racing. Um, he had been at Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Bob Calvin ha- got him to come down to Darlington and put Darlington on the map, and he did. Well, I was his—I I was his intern for the summer. I was back in the days when interns got paid. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I'm—I'm I'm, uh, living in this uh, old lady's house, save money, and uh, I worked there the whole summer waiting for. September the 1st, when dreaded football practice would start. And uh, so I'm there. So the guys, the racers come in, getting ready for the Southern 500. And uh, Russ put me over in infield, and he said, now, nah, come up with a story. It's bound to be something happened today. And uh, he gave me a couple ideas, but there weren't much. At any rate, Junior Johnson was driving Ray Fox's GOAT. Now, GOAT in those days did not stand for greatest of all time. GOAT came for a, for a weird race car, which in this time was a Dodge, mm-hmm. and Junior was driving it, fresh out of prison, I might add. And uh, <laughs> yep. he comes off the, what, what's now the fourth turn. Uh, he's going down the straightaway, and the drive shaft decides to leave the car. Hmm. and becomes a pole vault (laughs) jeez! the car went out of the racetrack and ended up on the road well of course that's a great story but for me because i'm there and I, I, i wrote the story and i handed it to russ and it said junior johnson escaped injury after his dodge flipped outside the racetrack period well, Russ got it and rewrote it. He said, "Junior Johnson escaped death." <laughs> That's pretty after, that pretty well tells it. <laughs> after yeah. his dodge, pole vaulted down the back stretch, six hundred feet outside the speedway, and landed on Highway Eleven
1: Sixty Two. Wow. Well, amazing. It you know
3: who's late ended up getting that one. Mm. But uh you had to do stuff like that in those days.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Humpy, I mean, this is what Bill France Sr. used to do all the time. And and this is back in the day when qualifying you might have correct me if I'm wrong, but you might have six cars, eight cars, 10 cars a day qualify and they did that on purpose to get to generate headlines. And, and one of the greatest examples of of just milking these headlines to death was the 1959 finish at the Daytona 500. When Lee Petty finally was crowned the winner of the 500. And I think, I think if I'm telling it correctly, Bill France senior knew who won it when it happened, but he wanted to, you know, spread that out as long as he possibly could over three, four days. And, and he was, he was like, no, we're not going to tell him who won the race because this is, uh, you know, we can get headlines for the next until Tuesday or Wednesday. Do you agree with that? I mean, it was it was headlines, right? Oh
3: my gosh, he was a master of that, and I learned so much from him. Um, and he kind of took me under his wing for a while and uh, taught me a lot of stuff. I, I can remember, uh, I, I'm up in his office. I always went by and visited him, and uh, went up to, in his office, and he said, "Let's go inside the track." That's okay. So we go inside the track. We're getting ready to go, and there's this tall, lanky guy walking in. And Bill said, uh, "Stop the car," and said, uh, "Sir, would you like to ride inside the track?" And of course, the guy didn't know either one of us from Adam. And uh, so he said, "Yeah." So he he got in the car. He got in the track. <laughs> now, you've never been to Daytona before. You get in a strange car with a tall guy and uh so all of a sudden bill takes off and goes down, out on the track <laughs> with this guy yeah
1: <laughs> yeah oh yeah and
3: we go three laps around the racetrack and this guy he can't believe it um and uh bill finally introduced himself and the guy's just goggle-eyed then you know because everybody knew who bill french was and uh but he would do stuff like that to get those fans revved up and, and talking about, because uh, he knew that guy was going to go back to Canada and tell everybody in the province of Ontario, everybody, every single person, mm-hmm. <laughs> that Bill France gave him three laps around Daytona Speedway.
1: <laughs> yeah, well... Well, see, Humpy, the opposite side of what we're talking about is, is when it's not good news and you're taking a car around a speedway, which Bill France Sr. did in 1969 at Talladega, the day uh, September, I believe, 22nd of 1969, when they opened Talladega Super Speedway and they had all the tire issues. And that's when Bill France Sr. actually took a car around there to try to prove to the drivers that, hey, all you got to do is just let off the throttle and we can run a race. And for fans that aren't, aren't for me, what I'm talking about in a very, very condensed version of this, the PDA was uh, when the drivers uh, kind of somewhat unionized themselves to try to convince Bill France senior that the tires aren't holding up and we're not going to drive these cars around this racetrack for the first time the track opens and we're going to all pack up and go home. And they did. And the drivers that were left Richard Brickhouse and Jim Vandiver and several others did run a race and they put some grand American cars with them and ran that race, but they all packed up and went home because the tires didn't hold up. And that was some not so desirable headlines that happened that day. So sometimes you can generate headlines that are good headlines and sometimes the headlines aren't so good. And, and you have to, you know, take the good and the bad. Would you agree? Yeah. You know, I was right in the middle of that because I was
3: work. I was a, uh, running the Firestones racing program then. And, uh, uh, I had to call bill France senior after our tire test and say, Bill, we're going to have to pull out because we cannot keep a tire on these cars. Mm -hmm. They're they're blistering. I mean, two laps. And and of course that, you know, he, he knew that he could go to Goodyear and try, try to get something done, which he did. But, uh, that just about put him under, uh because what he did, he told everybody that had a ticket for Talladega that it was good for the Daytona five hundred, so <laughs> wow. yeah yeah, yeah. That, ouch you know he ouch was right because he not only shot himself in the foot um, at Talladega revenue wise but also at Daytona because he was going to have to. There was probably 20,000 tickets there that he was going to have to replace with uh, uh, with with new ones that he wouldn't get any money for mm-hmm. fortunately what bailed him out was you know you know Union oil Company mm-hmm. they came in at that time when he was dead broken I can tell you he was and bought 25 percent of International Speedway Corp. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that gave them a tremendous dollar infusion, and literally saved NASCAR. And they've never really gotten credit for that, because I don't know where we'd be today if they hadn't have done that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean to to help tell that little just a little bit more. The um, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of the sweets <laughs> were not finished at the time and, and some folks got some free sweets pretty much because they're like, you know, you don't have the money to, you know, finish the sweets. So we're going to basically own them. And I think some people still own them because, because they, you know, they, uh, they he didn't have the money to finish them. So fine, you can have them, but you need to finish them as far as you can, because we're going to, in other words, he didn't have the money to pay for some things. Yeah. And no, no. Uh, money, yeah.
3: was money yeah. in those days, Money for racing was non-existent. You couldn't borrow it. Uh, when I when I took over to Speedway, Charlotte Motor Speedway, in '75, uh, '76, mm-hmm. um, the longest loan we could get was we'd get the purse money on Friday, and we'd have to pay it back on Monday. Ow. Unless it was Memorial Day weekend, which is 600 was, and then we 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 were good till Tuesday. But there was no long-term loans, and that's what really hurt racing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, there, I mean, but you had some of the really neatest, coolest promotions there at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and the one that really, really comes to mind, and you and I have talked about this several times, and we... We have to stop and catch our breath and laugh a little bit because it was so good and it was brilliant on your part. But let me preface the story by saying this. 1977. uh, This is the years when Jaws was out in the movie theaters. We're talking about movies a little bit ago. But Jaws 1 and Jaws 2 and I might have been a Jaws 3. I don't remember. But it was Kale Yarborough and Daryl Waltrip. And Daryl, Carol didn't say much. And the funny thing about Kale, if you walked up to him and had a Conversation with Kale. You say, "How's the car doing?" Car, Kale said, "Car was good." And you elaborate on that a little bit. Kale say, "Car is real good." I mean, Kale, Kale just didn't say anything. Then on the opposite end of that equation, Daryl Waltrip. you walked on the other end of the garage. Daryl, can you tell us how's your car doing? Ten minutes later. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they were totally, totally opposite one another. Yeah. So Kale, as you know, and for the new fans just now listening, Kale was basically given the uh the moniker Jaws. And the way that started, very quickly, I'll I'll condense it. But basically Southern 500, 1977, they're going down the backstretch, and there was a three-car accident between DK or Rick Kale, Yarborough, and Daryl Waltram. And so uh, DK Ulrich gets spun out, and they're they're in the basically the shower room there, and in, in the uh, the speedway, and DK comes up nose to nose with Kale and says, "Why did you spin me out?" He said, "I didn't spin you out. Jaws put you in the wall." He said, "What do you mean? Who's Jaws?" He said, "Jaws. They're a trip. And so that stuck. And so. I'll let you, Humpy, continue the story, but that, that was a brilliant move that you guys put together uh, later on. I think that was the April race, by the way, and then, uh, of course, the, five, the 600 was in May, and you had a brilliant uh, way to get people to come to the racetrack and buy tickets, and I'll let you take the story from there.
3: Well, uh, I, I, just, uh, I, I just laugh myself to death over that whole thing. So I said, well, let's, let's put it into action. So we got qualifying coming up in Charlotte and I called this friend of mine down in Cherry Grove, North Carolina, South Carolina, Cherry Grove, North Carolina, South Carolina. And uh, he's a, he was a shark fisherman. I said, could you go out and catch me the biggest shark you can find and bring it up to Charlotte next week for the race. So he went out and he caught a big black tip, which at the time was close to 200 pounds mm. and, mm. uh, he put it in his uh, uh, pickup truck, put ice on it, all over it, and drove it all the way to Charlotte. And uh, he, had, he had my phone number, so private number. So he called me when he got to the speedway. And I said, okay, the backstretch guy uh, is going to let you in. We're going to open the gate so you can come in. We're going to stop practice uh, so you can come in unnoticed. So he did. So he drove. He drives the shark-laden truck <laughs> into the infield, and I told him where to park, where nobody could see him. And he stayed there. And then on the signal, uh, he drove the truck over to pit road. And this was before everything got fancy. And everybody used to stand on pit road at just one spot, right down by the what would be the start-finish line. And uh, look, look at qualifying. I would put it up on the board with a piece of chalk. And um, all the drivers and crew, crew guys and stuff were there listening, watching that uh, uh, qualifying go. So he come, comes in there, and I've got this hook up there. And, of course, he's, his uh, uh, pickup's got a, a wrecker winch on it small one, and he holds the shark up with the big hook in his mouth, attaches the hook to the chain, <laughs> and drives off. <laughs> and there that shark's hanging down there. And uh, then I, I thought, my God, we've forgotten something. And uh, I called my maintenance guy, and I said, uh, Harvey Waters. I said, Harvey, go get me a chick. What? I said, Give me a chicken. <laughs> I don't mean a grocery store chicken. I'm talking about a real chicken. Just make sure it's dead. Bring <laughs> its neck. Well, he knew how to do that because he brought up on the farm. So he brings the chicken. He said, well, I got the chicken. What do you want me to do with it? I said, stuff it in that shark's mouth. He said, I don't know. They're getting pretty hostile over there with that thing. Uh, Daryl's mad and Kale is mad. And I said, okay, don't, don't worry about it. I say, anybody hit shoulder head with something, I'll take you to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, he, he takes that chicken over there and stuffs uh, uh, stuffs it in his mouth. Of course, Kale was driving for Holly Farms then, chicken processors, and all um, oh, people just went crazy when they saw that. Then they totally got it. Uh, you know, the uh, the shark is jaws, and and Kale's the chicken. Well, it really made Kale mad. <laughs> And he's calling me. What well, take that damn thing down? I mean, I said, No, I don't want to do anything. I'm just, you know, we're having fun with it. Well, I'm not having any fun. <laughs> then after he calls me, here comes Daryl. Oh my God, he's hotter than a firecracker. <laughs> That's an insult. And I said, it is not. Have some fun. It's getting too 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 uh, uh tight lift over there. Mm-hmm. So we left it there for a while. The sun came out. The shark starts smelling. (laughs) And it waifs down pit road from a slight southeast wind. (laughs) Meanwhile, NASCAR's trying everything they can to get me to move the damn shark. And uh, I said, well, give give me 15 more minutes. And I want to make sure everybody saw it, you know. And so, about thirty minutes later, instead of fifteen, we took the shark. And yeah, uh, you know, I always wondered what happened to that shark. I'm sure that uh, uh, he's probably back down in South Carolina somewhere. But uh, uh, we got a lot of a lot of felicity out of that.
1: Yeah. Okay, Jerry, I'm gonna let you have some fun now. I've had my fun.
2: Okay. Well, I got two things I want to ask you. First of all, we're going to go back to that uh, Augustus Speedway uh, with Joe Weatherly and the alligator. Okay, so he gets out of the out of the swamp, and then they start racing. Did they? What did they ever do with that alligator? Did they leave the alligator in there during the race?
3: Oh Lord, no! Because the drivers, <laughs> they'd all heard about it, and some of them were scared to death. The guy that won the race, Dave McDonald, uh, he was concerned about that. Uh, his alligators, you move the alligator. Oh, yeah, we got rid of the alligator. Well, I don't know how we got rid of it. <laughs> I just presume that alligator, you know, got uh, scared with all those engines running around there. And, uh, you know, people coming close to his habitat and decided to leave but i sure didn't go down there and <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: well you know i the, from a personal standpoint i mean i've witnessed as as has been so many of the great promotions you had but i've got to tell you my favorite personal um this is not necessarily a humpy wheeler story but you were there when it happened Let's go back to the 2005 uh, NASCAR All-Star Race at Lowe's Motor Speedway. Yep. And one of your um, guests, I, I can't remember if she was Grand Marshal or not, but one of your guests was Pamela Anderson. Yep. So I remember I interviewed her. We were in, uh, near Victory Lane, and I interviewed her. And afterwards, it, the, one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me in my entire life she decided to rub up against me for a couple seconds and I just go, Oh my God. And, <laughs> and, and uh, the late Bob Margolis, my co- colleague at Yahoo at the time he saw it, he says, God, I wish I would have had a picture of that. I mean, it was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. So Humpy from me, thank you. One of the best things that's ever happened to me. In my life. Well, you're,
3: very, you're very welcome. I, I didn't know that was a, a, a uh, extra deal that, that she did, but she's quite a, she was quite a character, and she, um, she got a people as about as riled up as Zsa Zsa Gabor. And, yep. Um, yep. Let's see who who was a the blonde bombshell that we had. Uh, a- any right, L- Linda uh, Vaughn. Now Linda has been there many times. I, yeah. This this girl, yeah. was the first time she'd ever been to a track. Um, uh, Barbie Benton? Barbie Benton. Barbie
2: Benton. <laughs> okay, right, right,
1: right.
3: So yep. we had, we, we had some fun with those celebrities and, uh, uh, getting them here because I always, you, you to a big boxing match and, um, you always see celebrities around ringside. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I always thought that added something to the, the deal. And that's why I would bring them in. Yeah. Now in those days I had a deal with Piedmont airlines, um, and Bill Howard, God bless him. Um, And he would fly these celebrities uh, from L.A. to Charlotte and back. Well, you know, uh, back in those days, Hollywood stars didn't travel a lot. Right. Uh, They didn't get paid what they do now. (laughs) They didn't have their own planes and all that kind of stuff. But they liked to get out and come and see – what the rest of the world's doing outside of California. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got a lot of them there. I never, never had to pay many of them much, much at all. Just give them a round trip fair and, and, and put them up in a nice place and uh, so forth. So they, they enjoyed that.
1: Yeah. Hey, I I want to ask you this question. I've been telling this story a, a couple of times and maybe I'm telling it wrong. Do you remember the, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, buddy Baker story? And oh yeah. <laughs> well, you might tell it better than I do. So you go, go for it. If you, if it's go just,
3: ahead. You're on, you're on a roll. <laughs> all
1: right. Well, okay, all right. This is the one about, you know, it, it, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, 1977 or eight, maybe 76, and she goes into the driver's meeting. And she is walking through, and Buddy Baker is in the corner there at the door, and he says something to the effect of, to his Buddy, boy, she looks like she's gained some weight. And she hears <laughs> she hears what Buddy has said. And she stops in her tracks and spins around. He says, I cannot believe that you said what you just said. I just can't believe you said that. And I'm going to go to Humpy Wheeler and I'm going to tell him exactly what you said. And I am just, I can't believe what you said. And I need to know exactly what your name is. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am. You're exactly right. I should not have said that. But well, what is your name? He said, my name is Daryl Waltrip. Yeah. <laughs> you remember that story? If I'm telling it right.
3: Yeah. You, are. you got that one on the, uh, you yeah. got that one right
1: on the, uh, nail on the head. That's typical buddy Baker. Yeah. Oh
3: God. Buddy and I had some great times. we used to fish all the time, and um, I was with him right before he died. Yeah, and uh, I miss him today. Oh, uh, you yes. know, there was nobody that we ever had that drove super speedways better than him.
0: He You're just right. said
3: it. He had absolutely no fear whatsoever. He also was very smart. I can remember. This was back in the day before everybody had airplanes and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we would drive to Daytona and uh, Buddy Baker and little Bud Moore and I uh, going down to Daytona and my car, my Dodge 500 Charger with a 426 and a Hearst 5-speed. Oh, boy. Well, uh, we made it to Pineville, which is just south of Charlotte, as you know. Mm-hmm. And Buddy decides I'm not going fast enough. <laughs> now it's, it's midnight because we do it at night, mm-hmm. and so I knew I just pulled over and let him in the car. So he starts driving. So I decide I'm gonna get in the back seat and get catch a few winks. Well, he and Bud start getting in this argument about flying saucers. <laughs> And uh, Buddy believes that they're real and Bud says they're not. Well, this went on for about an hour and I couldn't go to sleep from listening to these guys. And finally, maybe the most majestic thing that has ever been said about flying saucers, Buddy Baker himself said. He said, well, he said, Why don't they communicate with us? And, of course, Bud had an answer. You know, we don't speak their language and this, that, and the other thing. And then finally, Buddy said to Bud, if they were real, it would be like an ant trying to talk to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I could imagine this conversation at what three in the morning or whatever it was. Oh, Those two three jokers we
3: got the dance, the dance part of it, and I've uh, never heard a better explanation about flying saucers than that.
1: Well, the thing to put it in a little bit of perspective, I mean, you know how little Bud used to talk, and it was like real yeah. slow, like this, yeah. and. He would analyze it, sounded like this. And for, now he'd drive it 200 miles an hour, but to hear Bud tell it, he was kind of like, you remember that, how he would just. Uh,
3: oh, Lord, yes.
1: He was so slow in the way he would talk like this. But anyway, and then Buddy that was,
3: was. That was beachy talk.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then Buddy was, you know, he, it, oh, yeah. I And then everybody knew how Buddy was. And Buddy was a laugh a minute. I mean, you never knew what he was leading up to. When he would tell you some story and then he gets you so bad when he would, he was, well, let me tell you what I'm thinking. And he gets your ear in there and he gets you really thinking that he was, he pull your leg so bad. I love Buddy so much. He was so much fun to talk to. And, you know, and hearing him talk about him and Tiny Lund, make your sides hurt, you know, had Tiny would chase him around the infield of a racetrack. And of course, the falling out of the ambulance and, you know, he, he, he wrecked a racetrack. I can't, I think it was Greenville Pickens or somewhere. And he, he, he didn't get hurt in the wreck, but he got hurt because they didn't latch the back door of the ambulance and he fell out of the ambulance, <laughs> trying to get him to the racetrack. And he's that's where I got hurt on the gurney, not the rat. He does like, leave me alone. Just let unstrap me out. You're hurting me worse than the wreck. You know, that yeah. kind of, to get him to tell the story was hilarious, but I have a question. And it might take, we'll talk a little bit if you need us to so you can think about it. Okay, so you're a track promoter at Charlotte Motor Speedway or, or another track, and somebody says, okay, Humpy, here's the deal now. You have to come up with a list of like just three, five people. Just give me five, you got to fill up this place and, and it doesn't matter, you know, deceased or otherwise, but you got to pick five guys who you would love to come back and fill up this place as far as the stands. Could you give me five guys that you'd love to pick?
3: Yeah, I'd pick um, uh, Buddy, number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Buddy Baker. I would pick Fireball Roberts, Junior Johnson, Curtis Turner. Um,
1: I'm I'm sorry, I put you on the spot there.
3: No, that's okay. Richard Petty, because everybody loved him. And that leaves me one. That's a tough tough decision. Probably the one I would pick then would be Earnhardt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And yeah. those five together would be a, a formidable group that uh uh would, would be uh would would just be awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean <laughs> We saw Dale Earnhardt run those races in the late '80s, and I'm not saying I'm not saying he was never hungry, but I think he was pretty hungry in the late '80s, '85, '86, '87, running those the Winston's, um, you know, where there was only two two speeds for him, stopped in in 180 or 190, whatever he could make that car do around Charlotte Motor Speedway in those days, and and to me there were two Earnhardts. There was one the younger Earnhardt, he was like you know just but if i have to stuff it in the wild to win i will and i think he always was that way to a degree but i think he was a little bit more mature later in his career and he said i'll stuff it but not quite so hard Do you understand what i mean right. by that right he was yeah, um, yeah i mean he was the, the 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 Earnhardt of the 80s was a lot more uh aggr- I want' not say not more aggressive, but I mean he was just there were two Earnhardts if I if you understand what I'm trying to say. He or that the guy that was passing the grass type a Earnhardt then was it doesn't matter if I had to take the whole right side of the car off, I'm gonna come back the winner. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, and
3: and and the influence of Richard Childress on Earnhardt was tremendous.
2: Yeah. It was, uh,
3: yeah. And and enabling and telling him over and over again hey these are 400 500 600 mile races and if you're not around at the end you cannot win and yeah. you you know you can't even be around at the end if your car's all torn up and you're still out on the track because aerodynamically you can't do anything so richard childress's influence was tremendous people don't realize in Earnhardt's heyday, he and Richard would talk for an hour or two on the phone almost every night. Mm. Yeah. You know, you know the racing business. You know, it's almost a 24 hour a day deal. You're working in the shop all day, or you're signing autographs, or you're doing whatever. And then you, you most people back off at night. They didn't, they talked to each other about how to race over and over and over again. And a lot of people don't realize that that influence of children was a tremendous, tremendous advantage to Earnhardt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you knew Earnhardt early in the game, where you talked to him a lot, too. I mean, you influenced him not as much on the racetrack, but you influenced him a lot to, on the corporate side. Because there was a time or two that there was a—if I you don't mind me telling this—but there's a sponsor or two that really liked him. But you know, every time he would impress the sponsor, he might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Am I correct in saying that? And the sponsor was a little bit turned off. Am I correct? Well,
3: you know, if you, if, I, if we think about the Earnhardt in the early days, he was wild. He was wooly. Uh, it didn't have the right kind of teeth. he didn't talk right. It didn't dress right. Uh, from a corporate sponsorship, he was exactly the opposite of what you wanted. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. he fit the Wrangler mold perfect. Yeah. He, he was the cowboy. He just happened to uh, be racing cars and not wearing a, a Richard Petty hat. But yeah. mm-hmm. um, I think that that's as he got more sophisticated, if I can say, uh, that's when the better sponsor, that's when GM Goodrich came along. But at the same time, GM Goodrich wanted him because the biggest problem GM Goodrich had before they started sponsoring Earnhardt was counterfeit parts, fake parts from Taiwan, China, et cetera. And it was hurting their business. So anything they could do to become real, they wanted to do. And of course, Earnhardt was a real thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why they liked him so much. And um, a lot of companies probably would have shied away from him, but he was perfect for GM Goodrich,
1: perfect. Well, well, I say there's a huge compliment to you. Because back in the day, and I I don't take anything away from Charlotte Motor Speedway now, but in the mid-80s, early 80s to mid-80s, if you could win a race at Charlotte Motor Speedway, you had really arrived. And that was what everybody wanted to do, to win the 600 or the October race at Charlotte, and especially the 600. Mm -hmm. And so when Earnhardt was in that place, and I want to say that's too high up. I want to say maybe late seven, let's, let's call it late seventies. And so if anybody needed anything uh, of influence or whatever, they would call you and they would get advice from you. And Earnhardt did that. And, um, but you did a tremendous amount for him just to say, Dale, this is what you, this would better you. You would better yourself if you would do this. You'd better yourself if you do that. You would, you know, you could help yourself if you would, take this road or that road and you did a lot to help him in those late 70s corporate situations that he just didn't know and as time went on he got very good at it but in the very early days he just was not uh prepared that's a good way to put it uh to go into the corporate um, settings if i'm telling i think i'm telling that correctly and you were very influential to help in those roles well thank That's you that was a, to you
3: that that is a great compliment and and i really really appreciate it i uh I, see i know his father ralph uh as a matter of fact i raced against ralph <laughs> i was never a good racer but i i just love ralph and then later on when i was at firestone ralph was my chief test driver and uh for for dirt tires, and uh, as you know, Ralph was a man of few words. He just he just didn't talk much. And I'd call him on Monday, and I say, uh, from from Akron, Ohio, where Firestone was at the time, I say, Ralph, how'd those tires do at Greenville Pickens Saturday night? They was all right. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you have to you've been in Southern boy, you know how you have to translate that. Mm-hmm. And then I, then I said, well, uh, next week I'd call it, how does tires do? He said, I hope you send me another set of them. <laughs> that means they really worked well. Yep. He was not yep. a man of adjectives. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, I really liked old Ralph and, and, uh, uh ralph built me a gorgeous beautiful 37 ford flatback sedan and hmm. he built a flathead engine in it and i regret not keeping that car i ended up selling it to bud moore hmm. and uh i don't know what 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 happened to it after that but uh, uh ralph was something else he he was so thorough You know the great story about him going into the kitchen when he decided he didn't want to work a regular job anymore and wanted to go racing full-time. At that time, he was the first short track driver that I knew that that went racing Hmm. full-time, and Martha looked at him and said, one sentence. Just don't take any food off my children's table.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Good line. Yeah, powerful yeah. line, actually.
2: Right. Yeah, Humpy, Humpy, I've got a question for you, and I mean this with all due respect. When you left Charlotte Motor Speedway, was it two thousand seven, two thousand eight? I think it was. That was also right around the time where the recession hit. And, you know, a lot of uh, tracks, a lot of teams had issues in terms of promoting either their cars or promoting races. Now, now you did have your protege, you know, Eddie, um, Eddie Gossage at at Texas, who kind of picked up the mantle after you. But Eddie's now since uh, stepped down. We really don't have a promoter who thinks out of the box. In this sport right now, and I think if anything, that's what NASCAR needs. I know they've been trying to rebuild their fan base because they lost a lot of fans after the recession and you know years after that. But what what why do we not see a promoter of your kind or Eddie Gossage's kind today?
3: I asked Bill France that before he died, France Senior. Mm-hmm. I said, "We're all the young promoters today." And he looked at me with those steely eyes and said, they're running pizza franchises. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. You know, you want some guys to be running some dirt track somewhere full of passion and vigor and move on to the Super Speedway. Mm Mm-hmm. and and promote, 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 but there's just not many around. Now, Roger Slack's one of the best there is. He just left uh, uh, Tony Stewart's uh, Eldora Speedway, Mm -hmm. and a former guy that worked for me, uh, Jerry Gaffins, has taken over. Mm -hmm. Those guys are good promoters. Mm -hmm. Now, are we going to see more people come up? i hope so uh but i just think you got to come up from the short tracks because that's when you got to really really work to get uh get things going and then you got to have enough management skill if mm-hmm. you move up to the big track to be able to handle the number of people that are, that are working for you so i just hope those folks come along and uh uh, we, we get to the promoters back into racing.
2: Do you, do you miss promoting? I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, you're in, in semi-retirement, but you know, you were so good at it. I mean, you were the king of promotions, no question about it. I mean, do you ever miss not being part of it or, you know, have, have other, have tracks reached out to you for ideas over the last, you know, 10 years or so?
3: Yeah, sure you miss it. Uh, At the same time, what you don't miss are all the things that happen around a speedway that you least expect. Uh, Wheel goes in the grandstand, bridge collapse, uh, all kind of crazy stuff that uh, uh, you don't necessarily see in a lot of sport, but at the same time, you're looking at some tracks and thinking, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Mm -hmm. And, uh, or why do they do that? Um, And, and, and kind of go from there. So uh, it's, it's a different deal. And um, uh, uh, at the same time, there's no difference at all. It's still basic promotion. And that is to get your track and your event out in front of the public and as brought away as you can, uh, you know, and not tell lies about it, but just come up with, you know, really good promotions that people like and people don't want to uh, do something
1: with. Mm-hmm. And maybe a final question for me, being, and uh, and that is, is there a driver in your mind that you could just pick up the phone and call and say, could you come and help me do something? And, and just really enjoyed that relationship with kind of on the spot here, but is there anybody in, throughout your years that you really enjoyed working with? you tell me. about
3: just racing now?
1: Well, for, well, not necessarily, but just a driver that would help you promote a race or somebody that you had a real close friendship with that would help you maybe promote.
3: Oh, buddy Baker. I could call yeah. him and say, look, we got a radio show at six in the morning and uh, I need you to be on it and man, he would do it in a minute. And uh, uh, guys like that. Also, another guy that helped me out a lot, people don't realize the relationship that we had uh, until after I left, uh, or the last year's, was Junior Johnson. Uh, Mm. I loved him to death, and uh, he and I did a lot of things together. And uh, he was... um, what a what a ticket seller that guy was without even acting like one right you know? <laughs> Interesting. unbelievable
1: yeah well i mean he has such a such a a great story the old uh the moonshiner turns race driver turns team owner i mean he had it all you know he he and then but he he could say so much and say so little you know how he was he
3: well i this lady called me from London one day and she said, if, if I could get junior, she would get the other junior, which at that time was the lead singer on ACDC. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and, and
3: we'll, we'll bring him. we'll bring, a, we'll bring, I'll bring him over and we'll uh, get him together. Cause I understand you got a bootleg car I said, I do.
1: Yeah.
3: So we got him over got, uh, um, uh, the ACDC guy over and got him together with Junior. I, I told her right before they met each other, I said, I'm not sure they can speak the same language. English and we're talking about, uh, mountain English. And, yeah. uh, but they got along great. Well, it out in my car. And where I lived at the time was north of Charlotte. It was a real hilly places, And I let him take my car and drive it up through there. So Junior calls me on the cell phone. He says, that boy done wrecked your car. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He says, oh. bring your tractor up here. Let's pull it out of the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> so I went up there. They lost it in the corner. And he went in the ditch. It didn't hurt the car a bit. And I pulled him out and uh, he came back. And so uh, Junior said, I said, well, Junior, you want to have, have a beer? You know, Junior hardly drank any. Mm-hmm. If he did, it was a Budweiser. How about and, that? you know, it was his sponsor at one time. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, nah, I got to go home because, you know, I got breakfast in the morning. Well, breakfast, you know, is 4 o'clock. So he yeah. went to bed at 7. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, old Wilson from ACDC had his manager there. He stayed at my house all night. We drank a little bit, and he finally got uh, finished the scotch. And I said, so he kept looking at uh, Junior's yes. white whiskey, and he says, "I don't believe I'm ready for that." Yeah. <laughs> <I> said,
1: <"Well, laughs> Yeah, put
3: your seatbelt on on. He did. We had a we had a ball.
1: Yeah, well, that junior stuff's mighty strong. Junior told me one time. He said, "This the stuff that they were selling legally wasn't." He said, "That stuff's not nearly as strong as what I used to fix." You know.
3: know <laughs> so, anyway. I'm looking at a bottle right now. That's 160 proof. So Jeez. that's what in, and that's yeah. Where he. Yeah, that was well, the
1: normal stuff.
3: That yeah. was the. You yeah. don't want to light your matches around
2: that. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. You can pour that in your gas tank if you ran out. So, right,
2: right, right. There you go. Yeah. Well, Humpy, I you know, just final question for me, and uh, we also have our uh, the way we normally end our show, but I'll get to that in a second. But you know, right now as we look at NASCAR, you know, things are getting better. The fans are coming back. The teams are getting better. They're expanding. Uh, We're seeing new teams, uh, you know, like, like track house racing has come about uh, in the last couple of years. How, how bullish are you on NASCAR right now? And and in the future, I mean, how can, can they ever get back to what the days of old were like in the nineties and into the two thousands? Do you think
3: Jerry, I think we can, Um, I'm real high on a number of these young drivers uh number one particularly the watermelon man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. Ross chastain i just love it he gets up there and he drops a big watermelon down on the track and then mm-hmm. goes down and sticks it in his mouth and interviews him and he's got watermelon dribbling down his j- jaw and all that kind of stuff yep. that's the kind of characters we need mm-hmm. and to, to to keep the thing going and of course we got a, a super superstar in the making and, um, uh larson so uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on and uh, uh as long as we just we we kind of nascar's made a definite roundabout to try to get back to its roots mm-hmm. and without the the bad part of the roots and so i think um i think there's going to be a lot of potential now you know a lot of fans are, well why are we running on road courses well actually road courses uh, on TV are a good show. Uh, you may not want to particularly be there to uh, watch them in person as much as an oval, mm-hmm. but uh, there, there, there's a lot of action on those road courses. And I think this new car is really doing the job. And uh, obviously, with the, we've n- never had as many winners. And that Shows
2: you what that car is doing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you know, before uh, I turn it back over to Ben for the uh, the last part of the the show here, every single episode we have, we have an you know episode number, and this is obviously episode number seventy seven. And when we do these uh, episodes, we tie the number of the episode into a car number. So we're, when you know this will be car number seventy seven, and Ben. This, this car this car has got a lot of history and I know you've um, got both the the driver that first drove the 77 and it's been it's had two wins in its career and I've got a few things to add to that as well but I, you know let's let's hear about the the initial history if you will of the 77 that you, you came up with
1: okay sure will the first start for number 77 came September 11th 1949 and it came at Langhorn Speedway it was a Buick it started 22nd. Uh, and finished seven, 37th. And there was a guy named, by the name of Ken Schroeder, not Ken Schrader. Uh, and uh, it started, like I say, on September uh, 11th, 1949. And the car number actually has uh, two victories. One came August 9th, 1959, and it was Joe Lee Johnson. And if you remember that name, the trivia question is, where did he win his uh, another race? And it actually came on June 19th, 1960 at Charlotte Motor Speedway in the World 600, the inaugural World 600. Mm-hmm. And it was that day he used car number 89 as his uh, victory car number that day. And the second time wasn't too far in the past. It was actually Justin Haley. He won at Daytona July 7th, 2019. It was a shortened uh, 400 mile race down at Daytona Beach.
2: Exactly. Well, you know, there you the, go. the number 77 uh, in my research 1,009 starts, the two wins, as you mentioned, 31 top fives, 109 top tens. And believe it or not, and I didn't even notice this, to be honest with you, it last raced this past weekend in Daytona. Landon Castle was in the 77, and I did not realize that. But you know, some of the, there's been some great names that have been in the 77. Dave Blaney, Bobby Hillen Jr., Robert Presley, Reed Sorensen, Eric Jones, Sam Hornish Jr., Travis Keppl, Brandon Gaun, Greg Sachs, Johnny Rutherford from the IndyCar world, and Neil Bonnet. So there's been a lot of name, big names that race that car. So, but um, Humpy, uh, I you know I can't thank you enough for uh, joining us today. It's been a great thing. Every time we talk to you, it's always fun to talk to you because I mean you have so many stories you could probably write an encyclopedia of several volumes and still come up with more stuff i mean you you've got that so many great stories so i'm i'm very appreciative and honored that you were able to join us today and i'll turn it over to ben for some final words for, yep, for him, yep. uh, with uh- him to-
1: I echo what you say, Jerry, I cannot thank you enough for being with us. And, you know, you and I have just, we talk on the phones a couple of times a week, sometimes and just, all we do is we spend time just talking about NASCAR history and it's, you're such a great friend to me. And I want to thank you very kindly for that and just being uh, on the the show today. And seriously, I was joking with you about this week before we came on, we could probably talk, you know, three days and. And we won't make you do that this time, but we'd love to have you back on the show sometime for sure. Definitely.
2: Love to be back. And thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's an honor to have you with us. Seriously. Thank you so much.
2: Well, again, thanks ever so much for Humpy Wheeler. our guest today on a lifetime in motor sports podcast, episode number 77 for my buddy, Ben White. Uh, out of Salisbury, North Carolina. I said it right this time, folks. Yeah, you did. You're getting better. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I'm Jerry Buncastle. Trying to teach
1: him how to say Salisbury, Humpy.
2: Salisbury, Salisbury. That's it. That's it. He's working on it. He's from Chicago,
1: so we're working on him.
2: Still got that little bit of an accent in there. I'm trying to work on that part, but I'm getting there. Uh, yeah, wait a
3: minute. Chicago's got the greatest accents in the world. Well yeah, I'm yeah. not knocking
2: Chicago.
1: I love Chicago, but I'm just I mean, yeah. he's working on he's working on Salisbury. Yeah, so we we, we, we,
2: we got into it early on a few, <laughs> a few months back where I would say Salisbury and he would yeah. say Salisbury and I'd say Ben what kind of steak do you buy? Is it Salisbury or Salisbury? He no, says Salisbury. Salisbury. That's right. So I can't win that argument. So, but anyway, Humpy, again, thank you ever so much. And okay. uh, for my buddy, Ben, uh, Ben White, Thank you ever so much, everyone, for listening to a Lifetime in Motorsports podcast. We'll be back with Episode 78 next week and another surprise guest, probably. So have a great week, a great weekend, and look forward for the start of the NASCAR Cup playoffs. And it's going to be tremendous, the 10-week playoffs. So for Ben White and for our guest, Humvee Wheeler, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Take care, everyone. We'll catch you next time right here on the Lifetime in Motorsports okay. podcast.